three, two, one. <laughs> what? Reversal of fortune. That's why I tell my friends everything happens for Seriously, a Seriously, you had one job. I, just, I, I can't with Jesus some of these people. Put um, down your goddamn cell phone. I don't think my dad even knows how to use a computer. Uh, Would uh, you rather? All right, trust me, take no, my advice. No, but seriously, that legit happened. Hello, namaste, shalom, and welcome to Nervous Habits episode four. I'm your host, Ricky Rosen, and essentially this is a podcast about, you guessed it, pretty much everything, ranging from psychology and philosophy to nutrition and dating and back again. So it's taken until the seventh episode, guys. We're going to go in a different direction with our format. Just for this week, we're going to do something very special. Rather than breaking the episode into various segments, uh, myself and my guest will be tackling a very um, uh, intricate and uh, serious conversation around mental health. Uh, we will be giving you the details on you know what what is going on with me- mental health in America today and who's affected um, and what can you do about it. We'll also be sharing our personal experiences living with um, you know uh, you know living with anxiety um, and mental health uh, conditions. It will be a deeply personal conversation. Hope you will all listen. Um, all that and more on this week's episode of Nervous Habits. Anyway, keep sending in those emails, guys. Nervous at gmail.com. Nervous at gmail.com. Also follow us on Instagram at nervous habits podcast. Continuing to get um, really uh, thoughtful, uh, insightful messages um, and emails. And, you know, uh, going to keep reading them on the pod to kind of um, supplement and uh, deepen the conversations we're having. Uh, and now I would like to welcome into the studio uh, for the very first time our second guest here on season one of Nervous Habits Podcast. We share 50% of our DNA, the one and only Holly Michelle Rosen. Holly, welcome to the show. Hello. Namaste. <laughs> no applause. <laughs> she, uh, she picks up quick. She's a Rosen. Um, so Holly, uh, Holly's obviously my, my younger sister, my baby sister was born, what, a year later than me? A year and a half, almost. A, a year and a half. Just make sure you're speaking in the mic because, because some of our, some of our friends at home don't want, don't want to have to, you know, strain too much to hear you. So, uh, 93, I'm um, sorry to, to give away your age here. Uh, and who better to have, you know, uh, have a conversation, um, about, uh, psychology and anxiety than you know someone who's who's really dedicated her life to studying it so why don't you let our listeners know exactly you know what what you do and um, you know what uh, what your relationship is with these topics well that's a hard question doc but <laughs> right now um, I'm enrolled in the LIU post clinical psychology doctoral program in hopes of being a clinical psychologist myself one day with specialties one of which will be anxiety, um, and I've always dealt with anxiety. Mm. Well, uh, you know, hopefully. So, so just, just so we know, you're just you're just starting out, right? I just started this past fall and slowly surviving. Okay. How many years is the program? It is about five. All right, if I so get that far. No gray hairs right now, folks. Uh, not too many crow's feet under the eyes, but we'll see how she's doing in a couple of years. Um, you're growing up with Holly. I mean, you know, a lot of people are always ask me where where does your interest in psychology come from? Because obviously, you know, my as I keep saying, my background is more politics and law. Um, but Holly and I kind of act as springboards for one another. You know, we'll be sitting at the, at the dinner table growing up and recommending books to each other on sleep and you know uh, different. Different disorders. I mean, most kids were reading what Captain Underpants or The Hardy Boys. <laughs> Nancy Drew and Holly and I had these these books on um on, <laughs> on all these different psychological maladies. I think we were reading the DSM in middle school, right? Just, when, when it first got revised, probably. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bunch of bunch of nerdy psych kids. I wasn't brave enough to uh, to make a career out of psychology. Um, I don't know if I'm suited for that, but Holly's the better listener of the two of us, and. I'm really excited to have this conversation with her. Um, so, Holly, you know, I'm gonna kind of introduce, much like I did with with our guest a few episodes ago. I'm gonna introduce the mental health uh, situation right now in America. Go over some statistics, and uh, I, feel free to jump in at any point. Um, you're the ex- you're the expert here. Um, I, so, oh, no, I'm not yet. <laughs> pending degree, pending. So right now, guys, in America, um, according to uh, NAMI. 
Um, NAMI is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. I'm going to include the uh, the data infographics in the details section. But 44 million adults in America experience mental health. Um, excuse me, experience mental experience mental illness in a given year. That's one in five Americans. Now, what mental illnesses do you see the most? You have uh, about seven percent have depression. Eighteen percent have anxiety disorders. Three percent have bipolar disorders. And about one percent have schizophrenia. Um, now, what's what's uh, did you want to? Yeah. So let's just zoom in on that statistic. Eighteen percent, forty-two million of American adults have anxiety disorders. Eighteen percent. Yeah, I mean, and and the anxiety disorders are uh, are inclusive of of a number of things. We'll we'll get into a little bit later. But what's concerning, Holly, is. I, and I'm sure, I'm sure you know you you you're learning about this and you're seeing this a lot. Sixty percent of adults with a mental illness um, did not receive mental health services in a given year. So you have this huge chunk of the population that's battling depression and anxiety every day, and yet more than half of them aren't getting treatment for it. Why do you, you know at first glance? Why do you think that is? You know the results are. They're definitely sad to see, but you know they're not all that striking because there's a huge growing stigma of of mental illness. Um, I'm trying to work to hopefully bring awareness and do away with this stigma, but there's a stigma. People don't want to go to therapy. People Mm -hmm. don't want to seek treatment. They don't want to take medication. They don't want to believe that there's something wrong with them. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, do you think that the stigma is is getting better or worse? I mean, than say, so it's 2019, right? Um, telling your friends that you're on antidepressants today rather than when we grew up in, in the early 2000s, do you think it's easier or it's, it's, you know, it's becoming more accepted or less so? You know, we were just talking about this in my um, psychopathology class. And, you know, most people felt that therapy was increasingly less accepted than medication and that medication was almost glorified and you know you see in movies people popping pills that oh you take Zoloft I take Lexapro Hmm. so you know I think medication is less so of a stigma but it also depends on your background you know in in Judaism both medication and therapy are not very accepted Hmm. so you know it depends on the culture and how you're socialized. Both of our parents, I don't mean to disclose too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Both of our parents don't really believe in either therapy or medication. Right. Like you have people who, who will say like, Oh, you know, uh, Therapy is a is a what do they call like a pseudoscience? It's a a, you know a therapist is a therapist is a quack. (laughs) You're paying someone you know hundreds of dollars to sit there and pretend to listen to you. That's I think that's the baby boomer perception. But um, just a couple more facts to throw at you guys. So uh, essentially, you know, I I mentioned that all these people, 44 million Americans, uh, are battling mental illness. So depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, and it's a major contributor to the global burden of disease. It's also uh, burdening the economy, guys. Uh, Mental illness in general is costing America about $200 billion in lost earning every year. Um, And when you look at suicide statistics, 90% of those who die by suicide have an underlying um, mental illness. That shouldn't come as a surprise. You obviously have all these celebrities, folks in the popular media who take their own lives. and something, Holly, that, that was a little bit um, concerning to me is the impact that mental health is having on children and teenagers. Right, right. now, um, 50% of all lifetime cases of mental illness begin by age 14, and 75% of them begin by age 24. Um, and 20% of youth ages 13 to 18, that's one in five, Holly, live with a mental health condition. Um, why do you think that children today are, are, you know, are so affected by this because certainly our parents' generation didn't deal with this, um, you know, to the same degree 20, 30 years ago. Well, you know, I think it's a lot of things. I think, number one, the DSM, um, this past uh, published edition in 2013, has expanded to include more and more mental illness, you know, there's more and more symptoms, more and more disorders. ADHD is diagnosed in, you know, just about everybody, every hyper kid. Um, so there's an overdiagnosis 
overdiagnosis crisis that's getting worse, um, kids just can't be kids anymore, and it's sad. And also technology. Technology is huge. It's a huge leading cause of a lot of mental illnesses. First of all, overstimulation of media um, is is known to cause attention problems in children. You know, babies aren't and toddlers aren't even supposed to be exposed. The American Pediatric Association advises against a baby, you know, even seeing a TV. Yet every house you go into, you walk into a background noise, you know, the TV, the dog barking, and then the baby staring at the tablet. Mm-hmm. You know, how could a child not develop some sort of mental illness? If not ADHD, then anxiety, then you know, nervousness, neurosis. Yeah, Holly, you made a lot of excellent points there. So you mentioned that specifically ADHD, you said that um, there's an overdiagnosis of ADHD. So essentially, you have all these children who are exhibiting age-appropriate behavior. They're, you know, very hyper and they're, you know, um, they're hyperactive and they have a lot of energy. And instead of, you know, parents and doctors just saying, oh, this is normal behavior for a 10, 12-year-old, they're immediately diagnosing them with ADHD. Um, are there any other, uh, you know, dis- mental health disorders besides ADHD that you think are uh, becoming more common among teenagers or among young people, or is it really, you know, ADHD is where you see the biggest increase of late? Um, I think ADD and ADHD, I see the biggest increase. Um, also, just general shyness is or introversion not just in kids but all ages is considered you know negative or stigmatized people can't just be shy or quiet you know without something being wrong with them or Mm -hmm. maybe they're you know something weird is going on or they have anxiety maybe they're just shy and you don't have to open up the dsm if a kid is sitting by himself at lunch maybe he just likes solitude Wow, that's that's actually pretty pretty profound. I think I might quote you on that. Um, you don't have to open up the DSM if someone's sitting by him or herself at lunch. So, I mean, you're bringing up an interesting don't point. Don't quote me till I get my side. Yeah. <laughs> Asterix <laughs> pending pending completion of doctoral program. But seriously, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point here. In you have personality traits like introversion and, extro- and extroversion, and these personality traits are. People are confusing them for disorders, right? If you're not extroverted enough, then you must have some sort of social disorder. Um, or, you know, if if you're if you're sad all the time, or if you're you know too much energy, if you're manic, then you have a disorder. So let me ask you something. In you know a lot of the popular literature, they talk about how all disorders are on a spectrum. Are you familiar with that? Like, yes. like you see it mainly with autism, sure. but like everyone's on the spectrum where if you, if you guys can visualize like a normal bell curve and in the middle is like 50, 60% of the population and then you have extremes on both ends. So for, um, for people with mental illness, you know, is there such a thing? I don't mean to be like a conspiracy theorist, but is there such a thing as these kinds of like set disorders or could you make the case that everyone lies somewhere on the spectrum and some of us are just more you know awkward or obsessive than others you, you understand what I'm, what I'm saying so you're saying that we all have parts of every disorder in us <laughs> <laughs> i i would I, I would you know when you put it like that i would venture to say yes but but if you think about it like you mentioned with with introversion and extroversion you know it's not necessarily a disorder it's just someone is um, more or less, uh, you know, having that personality trait. So couldn't you make that case for any of these other traits, right? Like, like look at, um, you know, look at autism, for example. Everyone lies somewhere on the spectrum, do they not? You know, I really, I think it's hard to say. I guess if you put it that way, that every, you know, every disorder or condition does have a spectrum. But, you know, if the average person would be very low on most spectrums, um, and also, there's some very extreme disorders that the average person would not probably not fall on, like psychosis, mm. like schizophrenia, for example. Like, you need at least. It's not like there's a spectrum of, a, you know, you're schizophrenic if, um, and then X, Y, and Z. You know, it's not. It's not that simple. It's like you have to meet the criteria for at least six symptoms, and you have to 
these symptoms are have to be very present. So if you don't have hallucinations or delusions, you're not on the spectrum. Mm. You know, if for anxiety or pa- for panic attacks, if you've never had the experience of six or however many symptoms, three or four, I don't know how many, uh, make up a panic attack, then you can't have panic disorder. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but you can make that case for certain things like anxiety disorders. You know, it's more vague. A lot of people might be feel scared or nervous. Okay, but they might be on the lower end of the spectrum because they're not so nervous that it debilitates their lifestyle, that it w- would prevent them from going to school or work. They could still go through their lifestyle without it impairing them to such a debilitating level. Okay, I, I, I think okay, I think I understand what you're saying. You're saying for certain disorders, maybe like mood disorders, it might be the case that we all you know, I don't want to say we all have them, but we all lie somewhere on that curve. But for things like schizophrenia, um, you know, uh, panic disorder, bipolar, th- those require like a minimum number of, you know, exhibited symptoms, like yeah. behavioral. So, yeah, so they all require a minimum num- minimal number of symptoms. But those are more extreme disorders in that the symptoms are not typically experienced by people that a lot of the symptoms you know, most people have not experienced. Like an auditory hallucination, most people haven't experienced, you know? Whereas a nervous feeling in your chest, one time a day, people have experienced, especially if they're, you know, in a, maybe they're in a tough situation at home or something like that. There's also, you know, research a lot. My um, clinical interviewing professor, Dr. Knafo, would harshly disagree but there's also some evidence of chemical imbalances in um, certain disorders like schizophrenia, um, that certain brain areas are overactive um, in their amygdala and such. But, you know, thank God she can't hear this because she thinks that there's no such thing as a chemical imbalance. Wow, really? <laughs> but I find that really interesting. I mean, I love her to death. <laughs> but I just find that so hard to believe. Because- I would love to have a conversation with her about that. That's <laughs> That seems like goes against all, <laughs> everybody in the industry. Yeah, she's very unconventional. L- let me just, <laughs> yeah, let, let, me, let me say this, Holly. Um, the, the, you know, the thing that's perplexing about psychology and why I think it doesn't have the same, you know, clout as other sciences is, and I've mentioned this so many times, especially in episode five, we talked about consciousness, but the subjectivity of the field. Because if you think that you have, you know, a bacterial infection, right? If you think you have strep throat, you can take a test and they can look at your, you know, blood counts. You know, they draw blood, look at your white, white blood cell, they look at your red blood cell, and they can tell you definitively you have strep throat. In psychology, it's so subjective because how do you know you have depression? They can't put your brain under a microscope and see if you have a serotonin imbalance. All they do is they ask you these questions, you know, oh, uh, you know, have you had uh, sad or disturbing thoughts? Have they persisted? Have they interfered? And depending on how you perceive those questions and you draw your answers, you're diagnosed with depression. You're given medication. Is there a better way? This is a very big question, but is there a better way to diagnose psychological disorders like depression and anxiety besides just a quiz you know it is true that's why a lot of people doubt psychology as a science because it's not so cut and dry that you could be put under a microscope and then people can diagnose you with anxiety disorder i mean yeah we could yeah you could have you know brain scans and things like that and maybe you'd see certain levels of dopamine that are enhanced and it would you know the statistics would be parallel to what we see in some of our disorders, but that's not really realistic. Um, so what you're referring to is self-report measures, which, mm-hmm. which have a lot of limitations. You know, a lot of people don't really go for self-report measures for that very reason. There's a lot of issues with it, like impression management. Um, you know, people want to put down the best version of themselves. So... You know, it's not all that reliable, but we work with what we have. If someone's if someone's feeling depressed and they take um, the Beck Depression Inventory, the BDI, then, you know, they're probably, it's subjective, but that's what depression is subjective. You know, if they feel like they want to kill themselves or they feel like 
they hate themselves more than anything, that's how they're gonna, that's their lens of the world, and that's, and they're gonna report that. So, self-report does have merit, um, but it does have a lot of limitations. Um, there's also qualitative means of obtaining data. You observe people's body language, and you observe the content of what they say, um, and you learn from, you learn that way, and you could diagnose not exclusively that way, but that could be one part of your methods of diagnosis. There are people who are, once you're trained, you can actually learn how to code body language Mm. and nonverbal communication and, you know, vocals and everything like that um, in such a way that informs you about the diagnosis. So there has been research about um, ways of, ways of diagnosing and, you know, things that give away information it's not so simple as oh are you depressed no are you depressed yes Mm. it's it's not like a quiz um yeah it's a really you know i can go on and on um diagnoses is a very interesting thing you also have to you have to realize that if someone's coming to therapy that's a sacrifice right not no one's gonna come wake up one day and be like I'm bored I'm gonna go to therapy. Right. They they likely have something going on something wrong whether that be something that's diagnosed in the DSM which it likely is because we have a lot in the DSM or whether they're just going through their own thing their own issues. Right. And we're gonna get into therapy and medication later in the show when we talk about treatment and and you know what's most effective, but. Uh, one last note on depression in particular. I think the difficult thing is um, is really pinpointing as both a patient and, and as a, a treatment provider if something is a disorder or just a circumstantial thing. Like, for example, if your girlfriend breaks up with you and you're really sad for a week or two, right? This is probably something you talk about all the time in your program. If you're sad for a week or two or even a month, you go to a therapist and you take that quiz. Oh, like, do you ever think about ending your life? Do you have like disturbing thoughts? Yes, I do. Yes, yes, yes. Because I'm sad about my girl. Like, so how do you, and, and you know, it doesn't, it, it can be anything, right? If you experience grief, if you have a loss, if you're just lonely, how do you, um, as a medical, uh, you know, future uh, psychological provider, how do you differentiate between something that's caused by a circumstance and something that could be considered a psychopathological condition? Well, that's part of being a good practitioner. You're going to be aware of that possibility that when someone comes into therapy, um, you're going to learn so much about their history during intake and throughout the whole process in each session um, that you're going to be informed enough to realize, is this that is this a situational depression that's going to go away likely with time you know or is this more of a of a depression that generalizes but whether it's situation or whether it generalizes um the fact that the person is inclined to fall into this pattern when these when these things happen um is very important so if it's so if it's a breakup you know the average person would be devastated so there's not much to learn in that case well there's a lot there's always a lot to learn absolutely but (laughs) um you know if they're so if if they're so devastated you have to look at the the level of devastation if they're so devastated from a breakup for a long time that they want to jump off a bridge because their partner broke up with them that's even that's you know not really rational so you have to you have to think why is this person so impacted by this by this separation? You know what is it about them? So I think to answer your question that you know the therapist it's up to the therapist to be aware of you know situational more fleeting depressive episodes, mm-hmm. um, or if they're if they are more um, more likely to occur oftentimes or to generalize to other parts of their life. Sounds like an awful lot of responsibility. I'm I'm not I'm not too envious of you for having to, you know, um having that burden on you uh to, you know, make that distinction. So, I do want to talk uh for a moment, Holly, uh, on on kind of a more personal level, um on your, you know, experience with uh, anxiety and then, you know, I'll I'll share uh some of my own, but um 
just, you know, if you don't mind sharing and, and you can speak as generally or specifically as you like, when did you first realize that, you know, you had persistent anxiety? Well, if you, I think if you ask anyone with anxiety or an anxiety disorder this question, they usually have, a, have an easy answer or maybe even a complex answer, but they always have an answer for you because their anxiety has been persistent for as long as they can remember. So for me, I, I had a number of different memories um, related to my anxiety, but one in particular was in my preschool. Well, I've always had more social anxiety, and that's basically uh, a fear related to social situations, anxiety provoked by social situations, usually a fear of uncertainty related to social situations. Um, thanks, guys. I know I'm doing great on this one. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 you are. Keep going. I've made bounds. <laughs> Um, so basically, um, when I was in preschool, we were singing a song and every single person had, all the little kids had to go around and say a part of the song and then we had to move on to the next person. So if Ricky said, uh, Mary had a, and then I would say had a little lamb. Um. That sounds fun. We should play, the, <laughs> we, should, we should play that this weekend. Now it sounds, now it sounds pretty fun. <laughs> but anyway, so when it, when the, um whatever, when it was my turn to go, I just, you know, I was really anxious. I didn't want to go. I was terrified for it to be my turn, for all the kids to be looking at me. I started to notice, obviously, I couldn't articulate it or understand my experience when I was like four, but I, I was, it was, I was aware I was uncomfortable in this situation, you know, and it became a big negative experience and a negative memory that stuck with me. So I wasn't able to say anything when the, when it was my turn. And it was very embarrassing, and I started crying in front of the circle and the group. Um, yeah, and then I went to the bathroom a little a little while later, and two of the little four-year-old girls were, like, saying something about me. Like, I, I didn't... I don't think they can even talk at four. I know. Maybe... <laughs> see, maybe it was my own, like... <laughs> she, like, she, like, misremembers. It's amazing to me how vividly you're describing this. Almost like it happened... I don't... I mean, we. it's almost like the memory... Was either that like visceral, or you just remembered bits and pieces, and your brain filled in the rest? I think it was that visceral, but again, I probably was wrong about the bathroom occurrence. And <laughs> <laughs> by, by the way, guys, uh, you know this is a sensitive topic, but we are able to both Holly and I are able to talk about it and laugh and yeah. smile. So I don't want anyone to think we're making light of social anxiety. Oh, um, no. But uh, so you know that that story you told you were four um you know it's been 20, 20 plus years uh what what has you know in, in how have i changed yeah well what what, what what has your your life been like over the last two decades living with with anxiety you know i think i have made a lot of progress in my anxiety management since i was young i've been trying to understand this this unpleasant thing that i've been living with for so many years on a daily basis so when you are so aware of it for so many years you seek some answers um so you know i delve into my share of self-help books <laughs> i did my share of journaling i spoke to a lot of people and i mean i'm not healed but <laughs> you know you with anxiety you never really recover you just met you just learn to manage your anxiety effectively so i i like to think i manage my anxiety effectively now since I, you know, I took so long learning about it and learning about the origins of it and ways to manage it. I, I mean, Holly, like you've made like ton of strides just, you know, having having known you. Um, so you, you, you should be you should be really proud with how you've how you've managed that. Um, oh, thanks. And, <laughs> and um, and in terms of you know, if you want to kind of take a glass half full approach, do you think there have been any benefits to living with anxiety kind of thinking creatively because i'm going to talk about my experience with ocd in a moment and obviously you can see the benefits there but having you know general anxiety or social anxiety do you see any benefits in your life you know that's a good question because i feel like a lot of people think of anxiety and nervousness as an automatic deficit and defect and they don't really consider it as a possible benefit at all but mm -hmm. i do see benefits in it because first off, anxiety is in a not exclusively, but you know, largely what motivated me in, um, to go into clinical psychology and to understanding others in therapy. 
I wouldn't be able to understand others to the extent that I do or I will once I'm fully trained without my experiences with anxiety. So that's a big thing for me. Second, my anxiety is connected to my sensitivity, I think. Mm -hmm. And my sensitivity has enormous benefits like empathy, um, feeling experiences deeply and wholeheartedly. Um, So my sensitivity is a definite gift and I don't think that it would be the way that it is and the quality that it is without my anxiety. I would have, I would have answered the same thing for you because definitely I think for a lot of people, their best quality is their worst quality. So I would, I would say for you, sensitivity would be the benefit. And oh, the, and one more yeah. thing. Oh, please. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> like it, 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 you're the guest. Like you should be interrupting. Anxiety makes everything funny. Like <laughs> when you have anxiety and you start to notice all the, you, you just notice so much. You know, you notice what could go wrong. You notice what what went right. What someone said, what someone didn't say, you just overthink to the point where things get fucking hilarious. Um, Holly, <laughs> Holly, utilizing the the one f word quota that I gave for, for this episode. <laughs> no, but seriously, Holly brought up a great point. Having anxiety really richens, richens, enriches your enriches. sense of enriches your sense of humor. Because think about all the inside jokes we have. This is why Holly and I are so close because mm-hmm. we have so many inside jokes that are about anxiety. Like if we. <laughs> I want to be careful with what I say, but yeah. if we if we have like um you know a friend or or family like some we definitely kind of bond over like over the 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 my the minor like like little things that are gonna drive us make us both anxious and then we can yeah. just laugh about it and we learn to make fun of ourselves like like if I'm scared to death about a test I'll be like. Oh my god, I have a te- Ricky will be like, "Hey, how are you?" and I'm like, "Oh my god, I have a test tomorrow. I'm going to j- go jump off a bridge." So like, <laughs> even though I feel like anxious, you know, I learn to like laugh at myself and use self-deprecating humor. Yeah, and you become more self-aware, you know, and 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 you're not deni- living in denial or or, you know, uh, minimizing the problem. Um is there anything else before I I kind of share my experience? Is there anything else you think that um, living with anxiety has has taught you, or you know, ha- maybe it's it's um, you know uh, deepened an area of your of another area of your life. Any else you can think of? Um, I think just in, it definitely enriches relationships. Mm-hmm. That you know, when you have anxiety, and when other people have even the the slightest hint of anxiety. There's there's just a mutual understanding and compassion that goes with it. Um, and I also just want to say that um, anxiety is a, you know, as much as it does have its benefits that I went over, it is a huge problem. It is a, you know, we said 18% of Americans have it. It's a very um, prevalent and important um, disorder and group of disorders. And to... Um, to eradicate or to reduce the power of the stigma is huge because even if you're not experiencing anxiety, which I highly, highly doubt that that's true, the person that sits next to you at work is experiencing anxiety. Your family members mm-hmm. experience anxiety. Even if you don't talk about it, you know, the that feeling of being on edge um, day in and day out is extremely, extremely common. So you know, just a smile to somebody and how are you, a genuine how are you, um, a compliment, um, just to listen to somebody and not feel the need to jump in with your own experience, but just to sit back and listen, that can be extremely profound. Hey, Holly, how are you? <laughs> uh, no, I'm doing great. That's an inside joke because uh, Holly mentioned the bar- the self help section. Whenever we go to Barnes and Noble, we literally like like yeah. s- you know s- camp out over there and, and and we'll we'll bring a big pile to the register and the um the the what's it called the cashier will look at the book like living with anxiety or like or like being you know be, uh, be you know surviving depression and she'll just look us in the eyes and go how are you. <laughs> And, it's just like, and but, I'm just like over trying to be fine. I'm like, great. How are you? Yeah, it's like it, this isn't for me. Like, um, <laughs> for my dead grandma. No. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so thanks so much for for sharing that. Um, 
I do want to uh, open up a little bit about my experience with anxiety and OCD. And, you know, I've never shared this story with anyone. Uh, I mean, obviously with close friends and ex-girlfriends and, you know, Holly and, and my other sister Tara, uh, but never in a public space like this. So I'm a little nervous to say the least, but I figure, you know, Holly opened up and shared her story. So I might as well, uh, you know, share my story in the hopes that if you're going through something similar, you can know that you're not alone. Um, there's a beautiful spoken word poem by Neil Hilborn that Holly, actually, you showed me a while back, uh, and it perfectly encapsulates living with OCD. So take a few minutes to watch it on YouTube if you haven't seen it already. It's only three minutes, and it'll be worth it, I promise. It's uh, Neil Hilborn, H-I-L-B-O-R-N-E. You know that one, where the OCD poem? Oh, yeah. That's a classic. By the way, I got his signature. <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's, all, that's, like, that's better than, you know, it's better than Robert De Niro. So... Guys, growing up, I had a very obsessive personality, um, and I still do. Uh, I was obsessed with, you know, cartoons to the point, you know, SpongeBob and Fairly Out Parents, and to the point where I could literally sit and recount full episodes with my friends at lunch. Like, I, I, it, it was, it was insane. I, you know, I, I was obsessed, and I still am obsessed with baseball. I could fire off stats of thousands of players at whim. Um, and the way my brain works, I've kind of learned is, you know, different than other people's. I, I used to think like, you know, I, I'd just be sitting there like rattling off um, you know, memory, like uh, episodes of, of Jimmy Neutron and like very like, like, uh, you know, minor details and, you know, oh, like, did you see, remember when Carl was wearing like that color in his overalls and people <laughs> and people and people and I, I just thought, oh, like, you mean everyone doesn't remember those things? Everyone doesn't obsess over that? And, you know, also on the compulsion side, I've always been a compulsive note writer. You know, my, my desk at home and at work is littered with post-its and I have this tendency to like write everything down. Um, this is, <laughs> I don't know, I, I, want, I want to keep a couple things for myself. Um, but, <laughs> but like in like seventh grade, you know, I used to, I used to ride the school bus with, um, with my friend and I, I would... Um, when I got on the bus in the morning, I would have to like fill him in on, on what he missed from the previous day. So I'd like bring in a post-it of things to mention to him and I'd like grab his shoulder and I'd be like, all right, like, like class is in session and just start going right down the post-it. Wow. I thought I was bad. I mean, Holly, you, you know this, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and by, by the way, I, I again, didn't know about the post-it. Again, again, just I, I, again. So, so like same with the anxiety, we're, you know, making light of it, but this is a serious thing. And, you know, I would also like rank my favorite TV shows and foods and movies and books. These are lists that I still maintain to this day, and I plan on sharing the books and movie ones with you guys in a future episode, but I kept a journal for years, and in my journal, I felt the need to recount things to a crazy detailed degree. So Holly, you remember this, and I think you and Tara did this. I, I would go, we would go on vacation for eight days, and I felt the need to write down uh, every night what every single member of the family ordered for dinner <laughs> each night of the vacation. So like, you know, we would go to, you know, we would go to, uh, to Ch Chatham Inn and I'd be like, at the Chatham Inn tonight, Holly ordered a, a salmon with a side of potatoes <laughs> and, and for dessert, she had apple pie, Tara had, you know, a piece of ribeye steak, like literally or eight days, not because I like wanted to, but because it was, it was just like a habit. Like it was just my normal. And I mean, guys, like, you know, <laughs> it, you can laugh at this stuff, but th this is my lived experience. I mean... You know, I, I've been a, a crazy nail biter my whole life. Um, that that's, you know, we uh, we talked about habit formation, and um, that's that's something that I've been working on. But it's you know, I'm not necessarily like a germaphobe or anything like that. But I do wash my hands a lot, probably out of like ritualization. And my whole life, I didn't necessarily think there was anything wrong with these traits. You know, I assumed they were like a quirk. You know, people have been telling me my whole life. Um, that I have an obsessive personality, right? Mm -hmm. And like, again, I thought this was a quirk, not necessarily disorder, but I first realized that I might have obsessive compulsive disorder when I saw a psychologist in high school and I told her about all these things that I told you and, you know, we, um, I kind of laughed about it. She kind of laughed about it. But then after I was finished speaking, she kind of looked at me in like a state of shock that I'd been living with this you know, functioning, like functioning well for so long. And, you know, she just kind of asked me, do you like living like this? Did do you, do you see any problem with it? I, I told her the truth. I, 
I said no. You know, it was the only thing that I knew. And let's be honest, I, you know, I kind of liked having OCD because, you know, Holly, having OCD has its upsides. You know, I was a diligent student. You know, I, I would make amazing study guides in high school. Uh, <laughs> literally like 30 pages. No, more than that. I think my AP World Study Guide was like 120 pages long. And I stitched together like 18-page study guides from all the different units. In college, my paper outlines were were exemplary because when you have OCD, your detail orientation is impeccable. Um, but, you know, if I want to be, be truthful... OCD has definitely helped me back in personal relationships. Obsessiveness is not an endearing quality to, you know, to friends and to, you know, potential partners. It's, it's, you know, I, it's consumed a lot of my time in my headspace when I didn't want it to, because I tend to ruminate about things more than I need to. You know, there, there are neurons firing in my brain, contrary to what Dr. Kanafo thinks, there, there, there's, a, there's a neurological thing where the neurons are firing in my brain along action potentials that for one reason or another aren't firing the way that they're supposed to. And as I said, you know, I manage it, I deal with it, but it's something that, you know, you said when you were four, you remember your first, I don't remember the first time I, you know, I, I had it. Or I realized I had it. It's just been been there, you know, my uh, really my whole life. And let me ask you something, Ricky. So now I'm the host. Oh yes, the question's here. <laughs> so, by the way, that's a really interesting, good te- uh, technique that your therapist did. You know, asking you after you finished that spiel that if you liked doing those things because that's not really something you think about. You know that you feel like you have to do those things, but you don't really think if it's enjoyable or if it makes you happy, like a lot of the other daily activities we do does. So did you know at that point that it wasn't enjoyable or did you not really, did you really have more of a numbness to it that it was just something you felt like you had to do? Did you think, oh, this is pretty enjoyable. This is something I do that I like, or I don't like this, or I don't really know if I like this. It was almost like a, cra- a craving that was was birthed deep within me, like like a hu- like a, a hunger that I had to like satiate, like like I I couldn't I didn't question is this good or is this bad I just did it right out of habit and to feed that that hunger. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. I mean, I had similar anxiety. I would write down what our family got for dinner on eight days of vacation. I invented the eight-day vacation dinner. <laughs> but, I mean, I think you had, you have anxiety. I think, you know what's funny is I think, uh, I'm sorry. I, th- I said I think your OCD is more intense, but go ahead. I, was, I, I think that I, and I don't know if there's any basis to this in your doctoral program, but I think I like, um, like, like shared some of my OCD with you and, and Tara, other sister, because I vaguely remember all of us after, after dinner sitting with our journals <laughs> I swear, and Tara can back us up on this. Seeing where their journals like, like being like, "What did you order? Okay, okay, and how much was it?" Like, <laughs> listen, nobody, no one's here to defend you. And this <laughs> that was, never happened. And this was before the the days of calorie counting. It was like I ordered this like six meals, <laughs> and didn't worry about how filly it was. Listen, I blame you for my anxiety and OCD. So you know, <laughs> at some point, you know, we we have to kind of wrap up. So Holly, you know, we've spoken about. You know your experience with anxiety, my experience with OCD. Now let's let's talk briefly about the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, if you have anxiety, OCD, depression, panic disorder, any of these conditions, what should you do about it? Is treatment better? Is medication better? Um, is you know cognitive behavioral therapy? What is the best um, route? Because let's face it, and you mentioned this. There's no cure for any of this, guys. It's not it's not a, a, a you know a catch all. Uh, panacea. It's it's all about managing it, as you said. So so, what would you recommend? You know, it's really hard for me to make recommendations this early in my training. But that was a trick question. It was an ethical question, and you passed. Yes. <laughs> no, but like hypothetically, hypothetically speaking, what would you recommend? You know, someone do if they think they might have, excuse me, one of these conditions. You know, it's the best thing to do. I think is. Um, the the co-application of medication and therapy usually but depending on the the condition and the severity 
um, both of those things um, used simultaneously is the best. You know, if you're on an antidepressant for an anxiety, say Lexapro 20 uh, 20 milligrams, um, then the best thing for you to do is to be attending psychotherapy once a week or maybe twice a week, depending on how um, severely it's impairing your your life, your career, your relationships. Um, so that dual application, medication daily and psychotherapy once, maybe twice a week with, a, with an experienced psychotherapist um, who you feel like you have... that you can establish some rapport a good therapeutic alliance with because if you don't have a therapeutic alliance you're not going to make any progress in therapy Mm -hmm. and the there's you know there's a variety of different therapies or uh, therapeutic orientations you can explore but you can explore cognitive behavioral therapy um which as for ocd for example uh, for example, would adopt more behavior, uh, present-oriented, action-oriented uh, assignments in order to have you overcome your obsessions and compulsions. For example, if you were, if you had um, a compulsion of biting your nails, and every time you had an obsessive thought, you bit your nails off like you're doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> she called me out. <laughs> then um, a cognitive behavioral therapist would use um, a stimulus control technique where they would um, tell you to tape your nails so that, you know, the stimulus is under control, that you physically can't bite your nails, you know. Or maybe every time you bit your nails, there was some form of tracking that you would report it and you would self-monitor and that's that awareness and self-monitoring would would deter you from engaging in the behavior. So a lot of people are big uh, uh, CBT activists, but, you know, I I tend to be more in the psychodynamic orientation. At least that's where I'm falling right now. So I would, for OCD, for example, I would encourage the patient to explore their past and the the origin of where their OCD first emerged, when they remember their first obsessions and compulsions, how it it evolved to be a daily pattern, um, and, you know, what's defending them? Why why are they continuing to do these uh, obsessions? Um, Do they have defense mechanisms that are present in their everyday life? Do they have issues um, that they're concealing that that this habit of nail biting is protecting them from, Mm -hmm. are they not facing these issues? Um, So a psychodynamic therapist might view nail biting as, you know, a way of, a way, a way of controlling or, or managing their neurosis that developed from, um, from their family or of origin. Um, I'm probably saying this so wrong, but I'm trying. <laughs> no, no, I mean it makes sense to me. Uh, let me just let me just add a couple of things based on what I've what I've read in the literature. Um, exposure response therapy. I don't know if you mentioned that. Uh, if, for example, you have panic disorder, or let's stick with panic disorder. You you know you have a fear of um, you know uh, elevated heartbeat, uh, bringing on a panic attack. You would maybe take a stress test, induce the heartbeat, just mm-hmm. to kind of you know. Induce a panic attack and show yourself that you're surviving, you know, that, that everything's okay. Um, same thing with, with OCD. If you're afraid of, like, planes, then you just, you know, you vis- you close your eyes, you visualize going on a plane, um, and you kind of confront that fear. Um, also, visualization, I think, is is uh, is just an excellent tactic. You know, I, I, I had a therapist once, and she told me that, you know, you should visualize uh, that you always are carrying a toolbox with you no matter what. And the toolbox has a hammer and pliers and um, screwdrivers. And no matter what you know, uh, struggles you face in your daily life, you have a tool in your toolbox that you can use to deal with that. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, meditation um, and deep breathing, um, things like that I think are very, very underrated um, to – uh, you know, in addition to what Holly said, to help you uh, manage these conditions. Yeah. You know, my therapist utilized the same analogy. 
Oh, really? Are you serious? <laughs> yeah, I think they... It must I be think... like a therapist Reddit or something. <laughs> like, these suckers. No, I'm just kidding. Um, and when will, when, when will Dr. Holly Rosen begin accepting patients in case some of our listeners want to sign up? Anytime. Hit N- me up. No, nah, no. She's not, she's not qualified to do that. She's not a licensed doctor. Maybe in like four or five years. Um, so... <laughs> You know, just a couple takeaways. We've had a really enriching conversation. Uh, mental health, as we mentioned, um, conditions affect uh, 44 million uh, adults, one in five. Um, and, you know, depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide, we mentioned, as well as 20% of youth ages 13 to 18 live with a mental condition. We talked about the, Holly mentioned, the overdiagnosis of um, a lot of these conditions in younger people when it's really age-appropriate behavior uh, that's responsible for it. Um, we talked about the, uh, you know, our personal experiences with uh, anxiety and with OCD and, of course, how to treat this and minimize it. So, you know, maybe instead of something that's debilitating, you can kind of re uh, uh, rework it and rechannel it into a strength. You see someone next to you, you know, you don't know what they're dealing with and you know could be could be someone that's terrified to sing uh, Mary had a little lamb. <laughs> so <laughs> so just kind of uh, be empathetic. Um, next week, we are going to be uh, delving back into the three-segment format, a couple of uh, excellent topics on the agenda. We'll be talking about alcohol, why exactly do we drink so much, and what are the short and long-term effects it has on our bodies. We'll be diving into psychology again, examining our superficial nature, and whether the world would be better if we were all just gray, uniform blobs. And finally, in TV, whether Game of Thrones is worth my time. Thank you so much, Holly, for joining us on this episode of Nervous Habits Podcast. Thank you, Ricky. The second guest. Um, I think you did a wonderful job. You have a, a bright radio podcasting career ahead of you. Um, and uh, and yeah, thanks. Thank, thank you. Thanks. You're welcome. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, guys, for listening. Uh, remember to keep those emails coming. Nervous at gmail.com. Nervous at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast. Um, and that's about it. Tune in uh, next week for episode eight. This is your host, Ricky Rosen. Stay nervous, guys. Take care.